um, it's actually hard to know what my voice is. I'd probably have to ask my editors what they think my voice is. Um, I would go for, I, I would hope my voice would sort of disappear in a way. Like um, the goal is to have the reader get involved in your work, not necessarily notice who or how it's being told. I, I think like that's the way to get people to the end of the story, which is the goal is just get them to read to the end. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour. I'm your host, Adam Burnett, and with me as always is our producer, Sam Ferris. Hello, Sam. Hello, Adam. And today we are speaking with a freelance writer from across the Tasman. Her name is Naomi Arnold, and she is a writer on all things science. Naomi, who is based in Nelson on the tip of the South Island, was a really interesting person to speak to about journalism. She's a very experienced freelancer, which means she's learned many valuable lessons along the way. Absolutely, AB. Naomi explains the hard grind of being a freelancer, talks about the shrinking media landscape in New Zealand, and passes on some great advice to aspiring journos, which would have been very handy for me when I was starting out. We covered a variety of topics and then dove into a feature Naomi wrote for New Zealand Geographic last December. It was an awesome piece. It looked at the proliferation of artificial light and light pollution in our lives, particularly at night, and the impact it's having on our health as well as the environment. I found it a truly fascinating read, and I hope your listeners do as well. You can find the link to that story in the show notes and on Twitter. Where you can find us at, at the Writer's Hour. And seeing as you're on your computer, tablet, or smartphone, why not subscribe to the Writer's Hour wherever you get your podcasts. So it's a big thank you to Naomi, and here she is now. Naomi, hello. How are you? Hi, good, thanks. Thanks for coming on the Writer's Hour. It's great to have you on board all the way from Nelson in New Zealand, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep, no, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So how's life for a freelance journalist in New Zealand at the moment? Well, yeah, it was a bit scary with COVID. Obviously, um, there was a bit of work that disappeared straight away, um, but I've managed to kind of bring that money back a bit over the last couple of months just with um, other things that have come through. Uh, probably the worst thing that happened to freelancers was the loss of the Bauer magazine stable, which um, I think was maybe like more than 20 lifestyle and current affairs magazines just disappeared from the shelves. So, you know, when you go to the, the, um, the store now, there's actually gaps where there used to be a whole range of different types of magazines. So I think we're down to one current affairs magazine in New Zealand at the moment, um, New Zealand Geographic magazine. So, um, yeah, it's a bit dire and there have been talks about... Uh, you know, selling the titles on, and, and those are all still in the works. So that was that was pretty scary for New Zealand when that happened, and um, we're still waiting to see what the fallout will be. I was hoping to wind the clock back to your formative years as a journo uh, when you first came on deck, and how did it all come about being a journalist for you? Yeah, um, well, I studied English literature at university, which was just something I loved. Book, books and reading was just my favourite thing, so I, I did a four-year honours degree, and then went overseas and ended up in South Korea. Uh, teaching English, which was a pretty common path for university graduates in the early 2000s. Um, and while I was in Korea, I was there for three years uh, teaching English and just sort of traveling and enjoying myself. Um, I just decided I wanted to be a journo and sort of had my contract to finish out. So started freelancing from home as well as teaching and um, I bought five freelance journalism books <laughs> Uh, on Amazon or something, or maybe went to the Seoul bookshop, I can't quite recall, and just read them all and then just <laughs> drew up a spreadsheet and just started sending pictures out, which was hilarious. I mean, I was pitching like, you know, the biggest American magazines. It was, yeah, I had quite, because it was up there, obviously, American books. So I had sort of a skewed version of how successful I would be at doing that. Um, but yeah, I actually ended up being a few little jobs and um, probably my first story that I was super stoked to have published was a travel story for the New Zealand Listener, which is a um, what was a current affairs magazine here in New Zealand that was part of the Bauer stable that is currently in hiatus, shall we say, hope, hoping it comes back. But um, yeah, that was pretty exciting to have my very first published magazine story and it was a thousand word travel piece and I was just over the moon with it. And then um, uh, I had planned to come back to New Zealand to study journalism at the University of Canterbury 2008. So yeah, I went to do that and then um, uh, ended up in Antarctica for three months on a science writing scholarship and then got my first job at the Nelson Mail, which was a regional daily here in Nelson and was there for about five years before deciding to go freelance. Okay, so the job on the regional daily, how important was that in terms of informing you as a journalist, as a freelancer? Um, well, it was 
everything really. I, I felt like I didn't learn how to do journalism at journalism school. I sort of learned about it. And then when I got to the newspaper, I was like, oh, what do I do? You know, like, how do I do this? How do I report? Um, and obviously we did reporting, but it was, it was just completely different just working at a newspaper. And I almost sort of wish that we still had the cadetship scheme where you would be assigned a mentor and taken through that first year of just learning how to do it. Um, you know, I loved researching. I guess it depends on personality. Like I loved researching. I loved finding all about a subject and then telling the story and writing it. But I found um, probably like many journals actually like ringing people up and asking them things was just terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then, you know, having other people in the newsroom overhear what you were asking, like that was just really scary on like, your first day or first couple of months. So someone told me it'll take six months before you feel like you're, you know, you don't feel self-conscious all the time. And, and that was, that was probably true. Actually, I started to feel like I found my feet after six months and was able to ring people up and, you know, you ask pretty probing questions. It feels quite rude in the beginning, especially with disasters. I mean, you get sent to, you know, covering daily news as such a mixed bag of stuff. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of informing freelancing today, probably just that daily grind of churning out stories. I was also ended up being the feature writer there for, uh, about two or three years towards the end. So I was doing a daily feature story, like two, two, two and a half thousand words. Not, sorry, not daily, weekly. And as well as news stories and a couple of columns. So it was just the pure churn of it and getting it done in four days. And there's no excuse, just feed the beast. Like that type of mentality was really helpful for freelancing. Um, don't be precious. Just get the words down, you know, send them off, be on time. Um, and watch out for any legal challenges and stuff like that. <laughs> was it a big decision to leave the newspaper and, and challenge yourself as a, as a freelancer? Yeah, it, it just actually felt like a natural decision. Um, when I, I started in the recession, you know, 2009 was my first job and I'd graduated in 2008. And there was a lot of doom and gloom in the industry and Fairfax Media, which owned the, the Nelson Mail and a lot of other regional dailies in New Zealand, was shedding staff. You know, it, it was a real... It felt really demoralizing. Like when I first started, we had a social club and we there was a huge well, it felt huge, although it was also diminished since it what it had from what it had been. But there was um a lot of staff, a lot of different departments, advertising, marketing, and then they slowly became hollowed out and we ended up being a smaller team of reporters. The whole downstairs was empty, you know, and, and um they sort of put up partitions to block off all these echoing buildings um and eventually ended up renting all of the spaces and now the it's a much smaller team concentrated upstairs with all those jobs, the air jobs and the classified jobs and the layout and everything is obviously done in hubs or around New Zealand or offshore. So it felt really depressing there for a while. We were having farewells every week in farewell morning teas for several people at once and there were cakes all the time. And it was, I had lost a direct features editor. So I've, and the person who had that job given to them also had about a billion other things to do. So I started to feel unsafe with my reporting, like there wasn't much backup. And it's probably all kind of come back again now. But yeah, mm. it did feel really unstable. And there were other things I sort of wanted to try and explore, like writing nationally or maybe writing internationally. And I, yeah, the, my husband was also sick at the time. So I needed different hours. And there was just a whole bunch of things. And it was, it seemed like the best option. And it was pretty successful straight away, I think. I'd, I had started working at a cafe and a bookshop to sort of make up some money in case it didn't start working, but I pretty much got jobs and yeah, what was, because I was supporting us as well at the time, my husband and I. So um, yeah, it seemed to, seemed to work and I just kept going and I will keep going until it stops working. The world you talk about, I guess, back in 2009 doesn't sound too dissimilar to uh, the media world we're finding ourselves in at the moment. Mm. How have you, uh, managed to maintain some optimism amid all this doom and gloom or have you? Yeah. Um, optimism, maybe fatalism. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future of media. Like I don't think it's doom and gloom. I think people are valuing it more as we realize what we're losing. Um, for example, the spinoff here in New Zealand, it was an internet only publication that started up maybe, maybe even around the same time as maybe like 2012. And they have just had a massive membership increase that's enabled them to take on a lot more full-timers, um, like political, you know, full-time political journalists, full-time feature writers, um, full-time contributors and things like that. And they were doing really well before, but since COVID and since we lost some other publications, there's kind of been a narrative of you need to support these, the work that journalists are doing. And people have really gotten 
behind that, with a spin-off at least. And uh, yeah, I think if you're a publication, is it's almost like the internet age, you need to meet, you need to be a lot more honest and transparent than media organisations used to be. And I think organisations that embrace that um, and are really honest to their readers and accountable to their readers will probably be doing a lot better than the traditional behemoth organisation of old where they were the gatekeepers and what they said went. Yeah, I feel like um, if you kind of have to be a better a better organisation these days, I think, in terms of response to your audience to, to get their support. Yeah. Is that better for a freelancer in terms of um, if there's potentially a, a number of small independent outlets popping up, you're more likely to be able to get your foot in the door than with a, a giant? Yeah. Um, well, the giants, during COVID, they stopped their budgets, their contributor budget. So, um, yeah, there was no contributor budget for a while. And um, I think a couple of them have just started back up again. So that was a long time, you know, several months now that they weren't hiring any freelancers. Yeah, I, th- I think smaller places are always, I think they're always looking for content. So you can probably, there's a, and, you know, being a web-only publication, there's a lot more scope to have sort of personal essays and, you know, hot takes or whatever, like um, being published and noticed if you are good at what you're doing. And, yeah, I think... Um, there's a freelancer there's always places to put your your work if you're doing good work it'll probably get noticed and shared and hopefully there's good people on board who can help support you yeah no it's um i mean it's not sort of an either or there's there's benefits for both approaches but it's great to have these extra avenues for sure what about for young aspiring journos naomi do you suggest they start local or Um, yeah it would probably just be even just having a blog even just starting with your own blog just writing and reading and just doing that a lot. I think most places these days, the traditional media organizations, you know, to get a staff job there, you probably still have to have a journalism qualification because it's kind of become standard. But um, for example, the spin-off Madeline Chapman, um, she is a pretty celebrated young writer who's just, well, she ghost, ghost wrote Stephen Adams' book, The Basketballer, and also Jacinda Dern's new biography. And she basically just pitched the spin-off and you know, became one of their most valued writers just because she had such a great voice. And that's an example of she didn't have any formal experience, but um, she was just talented and they liked her and it all kind of worked out. So, um, yeah, I think probably just start writing if you're if you're not wanting to go down the whole journalism school, big publication route. It's different. I mean, there's journalists and then there's like, you know, writer. Like journalists, I feel like there's a certain level of professionalism and, ethical you know the vocational aspect of the job I think you would probably better be better to learn more formally but it doesn't have to be a barrier to actually writing for all sorts of different publications depending on what what you're doing if you're doing political content you'd want to be pretty well trained but if you're writing um you know essays or um, lifestyle stuff that's a bit more lifestyle then it's a bit easier to make a good start I think. Now I'm going to continue tapping into your well of freelance information here. You um, you did an awesome Twitter thread recently that was uh, it was pretty much a freelance writer's survival guide, I guess. It really caught my eye. I think it made a few people quite curious about what it takes and probably um, surprised a few people at the detail you went into. It was terrific. I'll add it to the show notes actually, but what are some, some of the headlines there, do you think? Yeah, I think um, with journalism, it's really easy to get caught up in the romance of it when actually it's you're running your own business, which has so many different challenges to it. There's time management, there's taxes and GST and uh, cash flow and managing clients or, or, or um, people who you're writing for. Like It's almost like a customer relationship. Mm. Like, And it's easy to get all caught up in the you know, the fancy writing or whatever like that, but you're actually providing a service to clients and you need to be really professional about it. <laughs> These are the things they don't tell us at Journo School. Yeah, I know. It's just freelancing. Yeah, you're running a small business. You have to think of yourself as one. You have to set rates. You have to set, think about how much money you want to make a year and you need to take off your retirement. You need to take off your tax. You need to take off savings and, I mean, holiday pay and sick pay. You need to have money aside if you want to take a holiday surprise, surprise if you get sick for a week, then you still have to keep working. No one's going to be, um, you know, giving you some time off. So you have to think about how you're going to manage that. The, the time management thing has been a real struggle for me because I'm a very bad procrastinator and I get very distracted when something is hard or, you know, or has or have bad feelings around it or it's difficult. So I have to be so onto it with my emotional management and just taking care of the mental health in that way. So and you, I mean, you need a quiet space, you know, you need a desk. It's going to be quite hard to be a full-time professional from the kitchen table where people are coming and going. So 
to go yeah to go full-time is, is a really yeah it depends how old you are and what sort of stage of life you're at too but for a younger person it's a lot easier someone in their 20s because they maybe have fewer expenses for an older person there's mortgages and kids and things to think about but if you approach it as a business from the beginning I think you'll um, probably find that that professionalism helps you just stay afloat probably yeah thinking about the money really carefully for a start is there a community of freelancers who you're able to draw some strength from? I mean, some safety in numbers almost. Yeah. Yeah, we do have, I have had quite a few Facebook message groups of freelancers over the years and they are really good to have because you don't have any colleagues, you know, there's not someone you can turn to and say, Oh my God, that guy was such a dick, you know, <laughs> or I can't believe this person, which you do a lot of in the newsroom. Um, so you slam the phone down, there's only you and then how are you going to get rid of you know, this energy? <laughs> so the Facebook messenger groups, are great but then they can actually be a sink of complaining from everyone so I, I do find that I actually do work better without them and just have phone calls with people just old-fashioned phone calls like just ranting about whatever's happened or this editor or, or that story and, and we, we all have the same problems and we all have the same personal problems and the same professional problems I've found so yeah I've, I've got a good support network of other freelancers around New Zealand yeah for sure they help they're amazing for the aspiring journalists listening to this, Naomi, how would you suggest going about making a cold pitch to an editor? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they've got no time, basically. So um, they've got you know 200 emails a day. So I'd probably just put pitch in the subject line and then um, uh, first ascent of a mountain or whatever you think. If say it's for an outdoors magazine and you want to do the first ascent of a local mountain in your area, I mean, not that it's ever going to happen these days, but let's pretend. Um, first one, legged ascent of Mount Aspiring. So you, um, you know, you'd put the pitch and what the story is in the subject line, and then basically just really quick, hi there. I wonder if you would be interested in the story, and then you just do a couple of paragraph summary of what it is, and then maybe put at the bottom, um, I've attached a couple of clips of my previous work, and here is my website. And editors will generally click through to the website, like have a website. It's a great landing place for, for your work. I wouldn't put anything in a word document, like just keep it all in the body of the email. And they may not ever get back to you. And that may happen, you know, 50 or 100 times. So what do you do if they don't reply? Did they even get your email? It's hard to know. Some people would follow up after two weeks and say, just checking to see if you got this. They may not reply again. You'll probably just move on after that. The other thing you have to do before you do that is to read the magazine or the newspaper or the website, like from cover to cover for the last like year or something, just to make sure that you know what section you're going to be pitching for. Like, do they even take freelancers for that section? So, for example, the National New Zealand Geographic magazine, the front section, the news sections are actually written by someone, they, Sky Wishart, who regularly writes them. But they, the features are all written by freelancers. So you wouldn't pitch a news piece for the front because that's already been taken care of. But you could perhaps pitch a feature to the, the back section of the magazine. And so you need to know what they've written about for the last year or two. Um, because someone may have already done it. The other thing that new people are often really concerned about is that the editors will steal your ideas and pass them on, um, which really doesn't often happen in my experience. Um, if someone likes the story and thinks you can do it, they'll probably commission it from you. Yeah, so your job is to pitch a story that they would like, that they haven't already done, that suits their magazine, that their, their readers will like, and that you can convince them that you're the one who can do it. So... Yeah, I just think be persistent. There are actually a lot of really good pitching guides online. They're um, often suited for American publications, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with following them. You know, they're quite succinct, yeah, in what you do, but I would just Google, yeah, how to pitch or something like that, and uh, there'll be lots of examples that come up. And Naomi, you talked about, I guess, the business side and the need to be organized in terms of being a freelancer and committing to a career as a freelancer. What about words themselves? I mean, do you have a particular voice that you are consistent with in all of your copy? And what other suggestions do you have for freelancers or potential freelancers? Uh, anything specific they need to consider when they're putting these stories together for different editors? Yeah, I, I end up doing quite a lot of varied work. So my voice has varied across the genre. Like I've written personal essays, I've written, I do a lot of science um, articles, like science journalism. Um, all you know, I write for a veterinary, a veterinary magazine regularly. Um, it's actually hard to know what my voice is. I probably have to ask my editors what they think my voice is. Um, I would go for, I, I would hope my voice would sort of disappear in a way. Like um, the goal is to have the reader get involved in your work, not necessarily notice 
who or how it's being told. I, I think like that's the way to get people to the end of the story, which is the goal is just get them to read to the end. Like I'm not even sure how often that happens. But yes, yeah, so some you know a voice can sometimes things can just jolt you out of the story if a writer's trying to be too fancy. Well, it depends what it is. I mean, if it's an essay, you want, you know, I just was reading this fantastic, incredible essay by the, called The Trayvon Generation for the New Yorker by Elizabeth Alexander, who's a poet and academic. And I mean, that is full of emotion and rage, and as it should be. Um, and so, so it just entirely depends on, on the, what you're writing about. If, if you're writing about a personal experience that sheds light on a political issue, then fill it with emotion and anger and, and amazing writing. But if you're pitching, you know, something more straightforward, then I just think having a good authoritative voice, yeah, the, the, the writing doesn't need to distract from that. Do you have to sometimes consider, uh, Naomi, in terms of if you're writing a science piece, for example, um, you mentioned you have a, a literature, English literature background. Do you have to weigh up, you know, the flourishes in your writing potentially versus getting the facts out on paper? Yeah, so it's the whole kill your darlings thing, isn't it? Um, so the, the, the editor will say, I think you're being a bit wanky. You know, they'll tell you that when you've, you've written something that you think is particularly great, you know, they'll, be, they'll just cut it. So, <laughs> so, you know, and they'll, they'll also help you, a good editor, if, if you're lucky enough to get a good editor, um, will also help you turn the flourishes into something like less egregiously <laughs> but um I mean there are, there are ways to be creative without being obvious you know um and, and you're not the only one writing it you know the editor will help you with that hopefully so so I mean every writer needs an editor and they need to be edited and that's a whole part of the process is um having another pair of eyes on it just seeing what you what you can't see so yeah I guess just start out writing in your voice and see what happens get try and get feedback from editors and if um, no one's really biting then you might want to look at what what you're doing but yeah I wouldn't like to say you know be boring tone down your flourishes like I think just mm-hmm. sort of go for it and see what happens and um you know your voice could be the one that everyone's waiting for but certainly doing the daily or like a reported piece you don't necessarily need to be in the story at all unless it sort of helps the story along what about for rookie writers Naomi who might not have access to an editor and are nervous yeah. about submitting um, their copy initially is it worth Sending to a friend, like a, a journo friend, or are you then muddying the waters too much? You're getting too many opinions in there. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, true. Um, I think if you send it to a journo, journos are really good at knowing what will play in the world of journalism. Mm-hmm. I think sending it to a journo friend would be amazing if, if you have a journo friend. Yeah, it's hard to know whose opinion to trust, isn't it? Because your mum might love everything you do. Another friend <laughs> might hate, hate the content. I, I mean, you can only, all you can do is try really. And then if they say no, you just kind of have to keep asking, don't you? Like if they reply and say, sorry, this isn't quite what we're looking for. You could reply and say, oh, uh, I'd love to hear. Um, I mean, the thing is that I'm saying this, I'm thinking no editor's going to want to spend half an hour explaining why it doesn't work. <laughs> but you mm. could say something like, oh, I'd, I'd love any feedback if you had any, you know, and they might just say, um, they might fire back and say, well, you know, there's no research to back this up or whatever it is it wrong. But it's hard to know what point everyone listening to this is going to be at but um Mm -hmm. yeah generally I would just read as much good writing as you can write as much as you can and you will get better as time goes on and you start to look back and sort of cringe at what you've written in the early days and and just just yeah just keep trying really do the knockbacks get easier yeah I don't care at all if I don't get anything accepted or don't hear from them it's, it's just like it's a business transaction you know it's like mm-hmm. this wasn't right for them I wasn't right for them I don't have any qualms at all about that yeah it just might mean if I mean it depends if you've got a particular story you want to write or if there's a particular publication that you want to write for so those are two quite different things like there's a story I've pitched to four different places and no one's taken it up but I know it's a really good story <laughs> like I really want to write it so someone will eventually I'll just it's not a very timely one so it can just sit there until I've got time to um, maybe re-angle it or some news comes up that's relevant to it you know like if there's um, I don't know say it's a story on moon rocks or something like if there is a new expedition to the moon planned um, one day then you could say you know with the new expedition to the moon plan I wonder if you'd be interested in the story on moon rocks um, so yeah, I, I've got a huge, I mean, I've had hundreds and hundreds of like, story ideas just like filed an email or filed in all sorts of places and sometimes something will just come up, news that's newsworthy and think, oh, maybe I should try and pitch that to someone. 
but you know, don't take it personally at all if, if they don't say anything. Um, just keep keep trying, keep adjusting. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you'd be willing or or have written the piece before you've actually sold it or before you've been commissioned officially to do it? Mm. So my first few pieces were like that. My travel stories that I got published that I found so in such a great experience. They were obviously full pieces that you pitched and, and then the travel editor decided if you wanted to take them or not. That was just the way it worked. I probably wouldn't do that these days because I only work on stuff I've been commissioned. Uh, I just don't have time to go writing things. But if I felt very moved by something, I would probably bash out a hot take or a column yeah, or a personal essay or so if something was happening that I really wanted to write about. Um, I would probably write it and then pitch it because that's the sort of thing that an editor will see in its entirety and decide if they want to take or not, I think. But I honestly have not, yeah, like all of my working hours are at the computer doing assigned jobs. And when I'm not at the computer, I'm just desperate to like move and not be sitting down. So I, I don't actually do a lot of pre-writing. I think, yeah, it's very much like work, like sit down, do the work and then just get out of the office and go and do something else. So um, I don't do much sort of creative or personal writing really which is a bit of a shame when you turn what you enjoy doing into a job. You tend to lose the, you know, the personal enjoyment side of it and because and, those hours are used on the, on the job. So, um, but yeah, I, yeah, something came up, I'd, I'd probably, and I had a day spare, I'd probably um, send a whole piece in. Yeah. Uh, Naomi, I wanted to talk to you about a story you wrote for New Zealand Geographic called Let There Be Light, in which you look at the proliferation of artificial light and light pollution in our lives and the impact it's having on our health as, as well as the environment. Um, now, where did the idea for that one come from? So I actually recently wrote a book called Southern Nights, which was about astronomy in New Zealand. And while I was researching that book, it really began to hit home um, how important a dark night was so we could actually see the stars. And then along with researching that book, I discovered research about the effects of light pollution um, or just artificial light on our brains and mood and all sorts of different um, physiological aspects of the human body. So... Um, that was one of the really, really interesting things that I couldn't really get into the book, get, couldn't get into in the book so much because it was a little bit out of the scope of it. So uh, again, that was just an idea that I had sitting around that I, I wanted to explore further. And the Starlight Conference, uh, and there's an international Starlight Conference in Tekapur, which is um, in the south of New Zealand, which has a wonderful dark sky um, park, you know, International Dark Sky Association accredited night sky protected area. Um, in an observatory there, and I went to the Starlight Conference, just a part of the general finding out about the subject that I was writing about, and um, there was a lot of community groups there who were looking to establish dark sky areas in their own communities because they'd realised the um, tourism benefits, you know, New Zealand and probably Australia to an extent as well, is one of the lesser light polluted areas in the world, and you know, some groups of New Zealanders have just realised recently that this is a really unique thing we should be taking advantage of because tourists come to Tekapur and they are stunned at the quality of the night sky there and they've never seen it before in their life. Um, tourists from, um, you know, Europe, North America and some of some parts of Asia that are very heavily populated have a lot of light pollution. So they've never seen the Milky Way, they've never seen stars in the way that we can see here. And that's something we've always taken for granted. But the science behind light pollution was really interesting for me because I had had an experience when I was in Antarctica over summer where there was no night for, I was there for about 12 weeks in the end and there was no night time. And I really kind of went a bit batty. <laughs> just, I found it really difficult and my eyes just felt constantly gritty and sore and, and I didn't sleep very well the whole time and I did develop um, anxiety quite badly just from not getting enough sleep. And that had always interested me um, you know, there's lots of stories about the polar night and the polar day being so long. Like, there's lots of work done on, on how that affects people, who research scientists and people who spend a lot of time in those areas. But um, I've never thought about too much light being a bad thing. So and I just had this really powerful experience when I got back to New Zealand and the night fell for the first time and I was at a hotel in Christchurch in the South Island and just stood outside and just felt this blanket like, it was like a warm blanket, like getting to a hot bath, just falling over me. And it felt so good. And I thought, what the hell has been going on in my brain that this feels incredible, you know, just the night coming. So, that, I mean, that was 2009, 2008, nine, so it was ages ago. And it, it just really stayed with me, that, that experience. It's not something we'll ever have outside of the polar um, zones. And then when I was writing this book, I, I must have pitched it to Rebecca at some point, um, the editor at New Zealand Geographic, and saying, oh, I'd love to do something on light pollution because there was 
out of the conference, um, there was this drive to make New Zealand the world's first dark sky nation, which was like a national accord on protecting our night skies. Um, I think Nui has actually pipped us the, the, um, the island, but yeah, I, I pitched the story on light pollution and I did a little experiment at home, turning off all the lights at night and after a scientist at, I think it's Macquarie, on oh, no, Monash, sorry, Sean Kane was as a biologist at Monash University in Melbourne and he'd um, presented at the conference and his research had really fascinated me on circadian rhythms and melatonin. So, and he doesn't have lights on in his home at night. He has a sort of low orangey glow and um, Australian publications have been, have called him, you know, the scientist who lives in the gloom and all those <laughs> sorts of, um, <laughs> like it's, it's quite a negative um, spin on it. But I mean, if he's a scientist researching the effects of artificial light on mood and people, and he has, you know, low lights in his home, you sort of want to listen to him. So my husband and I decided, it was October, um, so we decided to turn the lights, not, not turn the lights on, and it was the most amazing experience as night fell. I mean, obviously it wasn't middle of winter right now when it's dark at like six o'clock, but or five o'clock, but the feeling of calmness was just amazing, um, not having any artificial lights on. It was so profound, and it's really hard to do, and the screens as well, and it really makes you question all aspects of your life, like why am I you know, doing my insurance application at nine o'clock at night? Like, <laughs> it makes you think about how you've structured your life and what's important in it, and it's not something we have been able to keep up, but whenever I can, I just try and turn all the lights off and just have like, you know, low lights, like a candle or like an amber light. Um, and it's the most calming, amazing feeling. I really recommend it. You try it, especially if you're suffering from like, anxiety. It really puts you to sleep. Some people are quite sensitive. Uh, others may not be as sensitive, but it, it sort of puts you to sleep in a really nice way and you feel very calm. And I have really gone on about this at length, but I feel very passionate about <laughs> it. <laughs> no, I think that comes through in your copy. It's a great read. You tied together all those elements you've just discussed really well and bookended it with your experience in Antarctica. You bookended the piece. I'll just take it from the top here. I was awake for most of the three months I spent at Scott Base in 2008. It was summer, so Antarctica did not have a night and I suffered. The light reflecting off the snow and ice outside was so bright you could almost feel it. Each night after closing my bunk's shutters against the sun, I was tormented by hard slits of brightness that shone through the cracks and slipped easily around any form of eye mask. Often I gave up on sleep and roamed the halls of the base instead. Each window I passed a bright square of white. The only concession to the night was a lower sun which skimmed the horizon and washed the snow and sky with a slightly more pastel hue. My eyes felt permanently gritty and I experienced overwhelming anxiety. Not helpful when I was there on a journalism scholarship as a brand new graduate struggling to adjust to the expectations and rigours of my new career. The laundry drying room was my only respite. It was a dark, warm, windowless locker and I would sit out, sorry, I would sit down inside it until the darkness seeped in and my brain unclenched, my eyes and brow finally relaxing. I don't think you could have come up with a clearer example of the, the impact of too much light on our lives. It sounded like you were slowly going crazy there. It felt like this was um, also a good example of the theory that, you know, broadening our horizons in life makes us better writers. When you went to that conference, as soon as you started, the pieces started coming together in your mind, was this, was this your lead in your head or? Um, I actually only remembered that halfway through, which was quite funny. Um, it, it, it did stick with me my whole, you know, for the last, even if I thought about Antarctica, I think about that, but I actually had been so focused on this book that I was writing, which was published just just after the conference. So there was about two, two or three copies there um, that I don't think I even recalled it until I was like, oh, my God, like, that's right. Like, um, when I went to, you know, I couldn't sleep and it was terrible. And it, so I sort of hadn't connected the, the two things immediately. So all of my thinking just happens on the screen. Like, I'm very, not very good at outlining I don't find it very useful. Like I end up completely changing what I've outlined as I write. So um, it came to me sort of as I, as I was writing it. Um, and then I thought, oh, good, good beginning. And then um, actually, I think I had a different beginning. I think my editor put that up there. It's hard to remember now, but I did have, um, oh no, it may have been a sidebar of, because I wrote about my experience of trying to do this no lights experiment, but now I can't recall if that was a sidebar in the piece or if she cut it. <laughs> I <have> to find it. <laughs> Those changes, I guess, if you respect the editor, then generally you're okay with them. I mean, do you get precious about your copy or can you not afford to be? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, no, I don't get precious. I actually don't often read it afterwards because 
they've changed so much. They may have changed stuff to even just to fit the photograph in and, you know, all the caption. And it's, you just, it's just like, oh, it's, it's done next. You know, like um, if you get precious about it, I don't think you will get us back really. Yeah. I mean, again, like you you know, the editors are clients and you have to do what they want and a good one will respect your voice such as we're, or um, try and retain, will, will, will retain your voice while making the copy better. But um, if you start complaining, they'll probably just be like, ugh, difficult and move on, even if it's not justified. Yeah. You know? like, there are some things you can argue back on if you've got a good reason. But yeah, I, I just think that it's their publication and I'm creating a product for it really on some level. And I, um, I write to what they, what they require for their audience and for their space. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, it's still a nice personal way into the story, I think. And then it broadens from there. A couple of parts later, you say, I didn't realize how desperately humans need the dark. And mm. that, I guess, is the crux of the story. And then from there, you say more properly, which you were talking about earlier with the research from the professor at Monash, you say, we need our circadian rhythm to, st- uh, to remain steady, triggered only by the sun coming up and the sun going down. Like our ears, which regulate both hearing and balance, our eyes have two functions, vision and light detection. And then you talk about rod and cone photoreceptor cells in our eyes, um, which synchronize our internal clocks. You are educating the reader here. It's a, it's a national uh, New Zealand geographic magazine. So there is some education happening, but you've got to, as you said, the, the aim of the story is always to get them to the end. So you don't want to lose your reader along the way. Are you conscious of a balance between overloading people with new information and, and I guess, storytelling? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you have to give them a reason why they should read this, such mm. as here's the science behind, behind why we're even doing this. You know, the trouble is with science, once you start simplifying, you can lose so much nuance. Um, and so you do have to put, the, there's caveats you have to put in and you can't just say this causes that. You know, you have to say this has been implicated in this and may have an effect. You know, it's very rare that there's something that's black and white. And then the scientists, you know, if you, if you misrepresent it, they're not, not going to talk to you again either and neither will anyone in their office organisation. So you have to respect the research while painting a picture for the reader that's not going to put them off. But um, I, I try and think about it as writing for like a curious high school student, like maybe someone who's 16, 17, and just kind of just guiding them through the piece while coming up with concepts that illustrate the science in a way that's not dumbing it down or simplifying and tries to get that nuance and caveats in there. And often the scientists are the best people to help you phrase it. They're so used to explaining their work and they're often really good science communicators as well. And so, you know, you just say, can you explain this to me in a way that a layperson would understand? And, and they're often great at just drawing parallels and metaphors and, and you can um, kind of adapt those to the story. But yeah, I would probably, if I had to err on too complicated or less complicated, I'd probably go with more complicated because you have to get, it's more important to me to be accurate than, than simpler. Yeah. I just think it's more important to have an accurate science on the record and people can understand stuff. I mean, yeah, like you don't. It's not mm. being complicated or using too much jargon, but yeah, I would definitely expect more of the reader than less. I think. Yeah, give give your readers some some credit. Yeah, yeah. That was interesting that you said you consider maybe a 16, 17 year old student or science student when when you're writing. That's a good way to look at it. Is that something all writers should consider their their audience and maybe even a specific audience the way you've suggested there? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the publication. Like New Zealand Geographic, people are going to be interested in conservation, interested in the environment, interested in science anyway when they pick it up. But now that everything's being shared on the internet, so, you know, a story could get shared to a huge number of Facebook groups that have never heard of the publication and don't have any idea of what the publication is about or stands for. So it's kind of impossible to know who your audience is going to be now. It's not just subscribers. On one hand, you're writing for subscribers of the magazine. On the other hand, you're writing for whatever randoms will come across on the internet. So I'd probably, and, and also, yeah, the audience of the magazine is based on demographics as well. So, you know, North and South magazine, which was one of the Bauer titles that is currently in hiatus, um, was, I think it was like women, you know, over 35 or, um, you know, certain socioeconomic group. And so editors will usually keep that in mind as well when they're thinking of topics. And that can get kind of perverse when editors and designers are coming up with you know, really grabby cover pages that are sort of um, pro, I don't know, anti-millennial or something like that. But um, yeah, I, I think you do need to keep an idea of the reader in your mind. Um, 
but again, who it's hard to know who they are. So very true. Um, I'll move further into this piece where you say in a new section, artificial light emissions are increasing globally during the second half of the 20th century. The rate of growth was three to six percent per year. A 2017 study using the first ever calibrated satellite radiometer estimated that Earth's artificially lit outdoor area grew by more than 2% per year between 2012 and 2016. 80% of Earth's landmass now suffers from light pollution, while for 99% of people in Europe and the United States, the night sky is obscured by artificial lighting, according to research by the Light Pollution Science and Technology Institute in Italy. Now, a lot of your writing is research-based. How challenging is it? Naomi, for a freelancer to access this sort of information, uh, particularly up-to-date information, this is all its extremely important that it's up-to-date, obviously, and all your references here are from the last handful of years. Yeah, so it can be really difficult because we don't have $45 to pay for a journal article, like when you might need 12 for the story or something. Some of the barriers to actually accessing those journals are just impossible, but you can't even really go there. So you can ask scientists for their papers and they will usually happily send it to you if they yeah, if, if they see your request and, and things and so they'll send you copies. There are sort of illegal ways to get around, um, what do you call them, paywalls on journal research articles, but often they're not very reliable or you know legal. So probably asking the scientists is a good way. And do some libraries have access to, uh, if you're at university, for example, you've probably got access to a lot of journals and things. And then depending on your your local libraries, um, they will sometimes have access to them. But yeah, it can be hard. Uh, Google, you know, you go to Google Scholar and look for stuff on a topic and it's, the information can be pretty overwhelming. But generally, it's not just research you're writing about. You've got a person to tie, tie it to as well, like a person whose research it is. And they can show you, you know, other stuff in their field, depending on, you know, how intense the story is. Like if it's a thousand word column on something, I'll generally not really bother it a scientist for it depending on you know the pay rate and how much time I've got um, but if it's a four or five thousand word feature story and you obviously need to talk to a lot of people for it they'll be a lot more involved a particular researcher um, with, with the work and yeah you want to do a you know you want to represent their, their good work and um, do a good job on it and make it interesting and hopefully they'll talk to you again when they've got something else and so yeah it's, it's just about you know relationship building with context. Earlier in the piece, you say uh, there hasn't been a lot of research into the impact of artificial light on the natural environment in New Zealand, but then you do manage to find a really relevant way to put New Zealand in the conversation later in the piece via what we talked about earlier, these dark sky enthusiasts who are trying to preserve what you call um, prehistoric night in their own areas. How important was it that you did that for this piece, brought that local element to the story? Yeah. Yeah. Um, New Zealand Geographic is very focused on New Zealand. Mm. Um, so we don't often write about stuff happening overseas. Yeah, it's it's like its remit is to tell the story of New Zealand and its people and culture and our concerns. So we did have to, I mean, there was a, there was a wee bit of research that I found that a woman, a scientist was doing in Waikato University. So I managed to get that in there. But um, the community groups are just such a great aspect of this light pollution mm. work. Like they're the ones who have re- recognised what their region needs. And the other thing about it is that there are also economic and tourism benefits to a dark sky, not just natural, you know, wildlife benefits or human benefits is actually having a place as a dark sky destination can really help with tourism. So people who wouldn't normally care about environmental benefits or, or human health can really can, can see that there's an economic benefit to having protected night skies. So um, that's the great thing about the stars and, and this topic that I found was that the universe, it just traverses so many different areas of, of interest. You know, there's like science, education, astronomy, art, yeah, tourism, economy, and then there's cultural values, aesthetics and history. Like it's just a marvellous subject to write about. There's just so many different ways you can get into the night sky. I want to uh, read this little section where you talk about one member of the community, Kim Wesney, a nurse and artist, is involved in Wahiki's bid to become dark sky accredited. As a child, she recalls climbing her backyard rotary clothesline at night, wanting to get closer to the sky. That feeling of childhood wonder at the universe which uh, you sounded like you were um, sort of reveling in just then, by the way, uh, which was nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, emphasised by years spent watching the sunrise and sunset during shift work, powers her through dark sky advocacy today. I feel like you really evoked a sense of meaning there amid the science of it all. Do you find when you're writing these sorts of pieces, it is important to make them relatable like that? 
Yeah, we all need to connect with the human behind the, the piece and mm-hmm. what's driving them. And everyone, I mean, everyone has a clothesline in their backyard. Well, you know, I mean, not everyone, but that's a common feeling is the swinging on the clothesline or being out in the backyard at night. And um, when she told me that, I just thought, oh, that's, I experienced that myself. And I bet a lot of other people have too. Mm. And, and that's just a cool way to try and help people recall what it was like to have that first big realization that you were literally on a planet speeding through space and like, why are we even here? You know, those sorts of questions that um, children ask and the wonder that evokes, um, it's what I like about writing science actually, is just the wonder mm-hmm. and the curiosity that you can really imbue in it. It's just, yeah, the wonder at the natural world. And that was a nice thing that can mention that um, I thought would help people relate to it themselves. Yeah, it's nice to have those people who can sort of help drag you through different sections of the narrative. Yeah, for sure. Then at the close, Naomi, you head back to first person in the, in the final section and uh, where you discuss the experiment that you were talking about before with your husband where you guys turned off all the artificial lights or didn't turn them on as the day darkened and uh, you didn't use any blue light emitting screens in the evening. You say here, my husband was on board, but we quickly learned that you can't undergo such a significant change in the use of those precious three or four hours before bed in the dusk without being forced to address a lot of other habits in life. I discovered that closely managing those evening hours dramatically changed the way I felt about everything that had happened that day and my sleep and the day following. In fact, it reminded me of mid-January 2009 when I left Scott Base and got home to Christchurch. I stayed for, the, for my first night in a room at an airport hotel. In the evening, I stood outside, eagerly awaiting my first darkness in 13 weeks. When it came, I remember feeling like a blanket was being laid over me. It was the sweetest balm, flooded with everything I hadn't realised I'd missed in Antarctica. It had rained and the air was damp. I could smell flowers and wet, fresh grass. I could hear insects. Then the darkness slowly flooded over me and my eyelids felt heavy and I closed my eyes in welcome. And that's the close. It's a nice personal ending, really cleverly done, I thought. Did it come to you easily? I I guess you talked about it before, that it was a really strong memory for you. Do you think writers should really give a lot of thought to the way they're going to close out a story? Uh, For me, the ending usually comes as a just flash snap decision Mm -hmm. that it feels right. So something just feels like it would be a good way to, to finish off an idea and it actually kind of tends to arrive like fully formed um in my head while I'm writing um sometimes that turns into a pre-ending where it's like the last part of the section and then you sort of have another ending after that that kind of wraps wraps everything up I yeah um I mean some writers outline Mm -hmm. and they know what it's going to be ahead of time I have a friend who cannot start a piece until she has the intro okay she just can't, like, she, she has, has to get the intro first, whereas my intros will often come halfway through. I'll be like, oh, that's good for the intro, so I'll throw it, back, I'll throw it up to the top of the page. I think the ending, the ending is really important. It is the bell that rings that the reader takes away mm. with them. Um, and the intro, obviously, there's probably a lot more attention applied to intros and endings, isn't there? Because you're trying to grab the reader in the beginning, mm. but I often think grabbing them at the end is the way to make it stick. Did you know with this one that you were going to circle back to the start? yeah that was probably deliberate I don't think I necessarily I feel like halfway through this I only came up with the Antarctica idea anyway and then that was naturally <laughs> honestly it's actually really difficult for me to say. I'm not even sure there's much thought like conscious planning that goes into this it just seems to feel like the right idea at the time <laughs> but um I would have um I thought the Antarctica thing like a quarter or three quarters way through and then put that at the beginning and I thought, Oh I know it will be a good ending. It's actually coming back to Christchurch and feeling that intensity again. And then yeah, I, I guess it just felt like a way to bring back the power of to really reiterate like when we don't have the night how awful it is and how much we need it. Like even yesterday, I was I got home from a long day and I was like kind of annoyed with life. And then I walked, we live in a rural area, so there's no lights outside. And I just walked the dog to the end of the road and back. And by the time I got home, I was a completely different person. Like yeah. I'd solved all my problems. <laughs> like I'd walked under the Milky Way. I'd seen Jupiter coming up. I saw a shooting star. I saw the Southern Cross. And I honestly got home and I was ready to address all of the issues in my life, you know. <laughs> and it was fine. It was totally without without pain. And um, I, just that feeling of what being outside at night without light does for me is so profound. And I, I'm kind of just trying to get that across, I think. Uh, you really have to try it, more people, if you haven't been out at night without light. Enough, <laughs> get, get, get out there. 
<laughs> well, I think you did it well. I think you uh, you really communicated it in that piece beautifully, especially that close. I really liked the close. Um, I know some writers I've heard, they jot down their endings before they've even written anything else so they know where they're going. I can't say I've ever done that. Is that something you've ever tried? Um, they, they really just come up as I'm going. Like, mm. I, cause this is why I have so much anxiety and stress over writing. Is <laughs> I don't know where I'm going in the beginning. And this is why I procrastinate. It's because I'm like, you start with the blank page. It's like, I'm not sure where I'm going. This is like, I always I write down an outline, but I, it doesn't end up following it. So um, you, you really just have to, you know, sit down and, and just draw the blood and just start going. And then, it, and then it, it's fine once you start, obviously, like anything. Yeah, it's very much like a cold swim. <laughs> <laughs> just jump in. Jump in. What does an outline look like for you, Naomi? So I've, I've got, you know, one giant word dog for like a five. I mean, I think the longest story I've written was like, maybe 11,000 words, which was massive. So it's a word document with bullet points. And that's just, you know, here is the topic and then the bullet point and then the bullet point, um, you know, tab in and it's person, maybe a quote or topic. And then, yeah, you're just, just going down the document like that. And, and that can run for several pages sometimes. Um, but honestly, I, it just, it doesn't ever seem to end up in the way that I've outlined it. I, as I write, I think, oh my gosh, that should be there. This should be here. And it becomes, yeah, it's a strange science slash art form, isn't it? It's like it just suddenly makes more sense to do it a different way. And then I will go in a completely different direction. That suddenly seems like the obvious correct way to go that I didn't realize before I started writing. But I guess in some senses, in some senses, that outline has still helped you get there. That's right. It's a process, yeah. Um, I mean, even if these jigsaw puzzle pieces are, even if they're all over the place, they are, they're there. So you can then start to piece them together. Yeah, the easiest stories are chronological. <laughs> Because you could just follow the follow the story. Yeah, absolutely. And what about I guess twenty twenty is a different kettle of fish with the pandemic. But let's say twenty twenty one, you're doing a full year of freelance work as you do, um, and you have an average to good year. Uh, how many pieces are you writing? I mean, do you keep track of that sort of thing? Oh, that's a real question, and I actually have no idea how many pieces it is. And I probably couldn't even give you a ballpark. Yeah. I actually have no idea. It could be 20. It could be 80. Will you pick up odd jobs in terms of, yeah, I'll knock over this 350 word thought piece for, you know, a friend who's an editor and that kind of thing? Or Yeah. No, I just did that last week. Someone emailed me on Wednesday and said, oh my God, we need something for this weekend. Oh my God, please, please, please. Can you do this? Because there was something happening. And I was like, 800 words. She said 800 words. And I said, yep. And she said by Friday. I was like, oh God, because it was like Wednesday morning and then did it by Friday morning I was like yep so I stayed up late and did it because she is a really nice person and editor who I really like yeah sometimes you just pull out all the stops for somebody who you like and enjoy working with and if it's a piece that I, I can do and I have time to do and you know the pay is, is okay then I'll definitely just whip, whip it out yeah would you advise young writers to say yes more than off, more often than saying yeah. no yeah I know the trouble with this job is that you do have to do the cheap labor and the hard stuff, like to get further up the chain, you know, so you do have to write for less than you'd want to. And this is why it can Mm. be problematic because who are the people who can afford to write for less than they want to? It's the privileged who have jobs, who have parents Mm. who can support them um, or who have partners who can support them. And this is why it's so important to pay people properly so they can actually make a living so we can get a diversity of voices, not just people who have the privilege to be able to, right on the side so but yeah if, if you're starting out i would do yeah just take whatever you can like um if it fits with your you know, with your values and what you're trying to portray as a right like for example if you want to do science journalism and there was a chance to write blogs for the local museum or whatever like i would just do that and just get some good examples of copy going and take the early pay stuff you know the crappy pay stuff and, you know, there's an argument against that, that it lowers the tide for everyone. And I do, at this point, turn down stuff that's not paid well enough. But, yeah, at the same time, if you're trying to get started, you know, you can't jump straight into those highly paid positions. So I'm just trying to maybe have an ethical framework around it. And, yeah, mind the mental health as well. If you're writing too much for not much, that can be really demoralizing. But, yeah, if you can get, you know, something where people, where you're respected, and it's not paying much, then I would, I would still do it just to get those clips up in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit tricky because I, I wouldn't, I don't want to give that advice, but actually that's kind of what you should do <laughs> at the same time. 
Naomi, longer term, you've been freelancing for more than six years now. You've proven it's sustainable if you're organized and if, if you're good at what you do. Are you confident that's going to remain the case in the coming years? Um, no. No, I'm not confident it's going to remain the same. Um, I really just take things. If I've got work sort of two months ahead, then that, that's pretty lucky. And so I, I never really think more than a couple of months ahead when my deadlines finish and you know, there's like the yawning gap of no deadlines in September, October. So I need to start filling up those deadlines now with, with work. And it's really hard to know what's going to happen. Um, I'll probably end up doing more like brand content stuff, I think, because they actually pay. And journalism, like what I've seen from other freelancers is that, you know, reporting used to make up like 70% of their income and now it's like more like 40 or 50%. And that could come and go in the years to come as we maybe start to value the media more, which I feel like I'm seeing happening as well. Um, and there could be lean years again, like during another recession, advertising drops off again. So it's really hard to know. I, I would just, I feel like if you get too attached to this career, it can really, you know, chew you up and spit you out if you feel like you need to be making all of your money from 100% journalism or not have a day job. Like have a day job. There's nothing wrong with having a day job and doing a few pieces on the side that you're really passionate about that are paid decently, you know, like why do we feel like we have to make a living writing full time? It's really difficult. It's hard on the body. I just, yeah, if, if you write part time, that's brilliant. I've got a friend who works for, you know, doing marketing and she is also freelancing on the side and she just loves the day off. She, you know, she had a four days a week at her job and now she's doing one day a week freelancing. She loves it. And she probably can't afford to go to the full hog. And I don't think we should feel like we have to really. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. A portfolio career is probably going to be true for more of us in the future. Do you still have time to read much? And if so, uh, what writers do you enjoy reading? Um, my reading is really scattered and it's so driven by social media. I've actually taken a bit of a social media break at the moment because I was just, you know, what social media is like. It just drives you in a million different directions. Um, so I've, I've sort of, when I've been asked this question, I've sort of started to realize I don't actually follow particular journalists so much. Um, it's more about the publication or what's tweeted into my feed. So I just started recently setting Fridays aside to try and really concentrate on some better, deeper reading, you know, more targeted reading and just get to know a few writers a bit more, which I'd actually really like to do. And often, like what I was saying earlier about the writing disappearing when you're into a story, um, I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, someone's voice should come through in a story unless it's like a personal piece but yeah I really enjoy here in New Zealand um, Eloise Gibson and Rebecca White and Kate Evans are really great science reporters they do a lot of and Jamie Morton they do some really good science reporting here Leonie Hayden is a author at the spin-off who I really love her work she's just a searing brilliant writer on all sorts of different topics and I Catherine Schultz at the New Yorker was I really loved her story it was called the really big one about the San Andreas fault and that's like a classic like everyone's has, has read that and that was just such a great reporting of just an uh, example of very calm reporting like, yeah that was just such a good taste and I think I actually won the Pulitzer didn't it yeah I listened to her talk about that one on uh, the long form podcast actually oh yeah was, yeah uh, that's a great podcast yeah it is yeah awesome and yeah she put that together so well I guess that was kind of what you've done with this let there be night piece what we're discussing in terms of pulling the reader through the story whilst also educating them along the way she just did that incredibly well yeah, well, that's the big goal, isn't it? Susan, I really enjoy Susan Casey and Susan Orleans, but natural, um, well, just, you know, journalism and also Susan Casey's natural, natural world writing and um, John Valiant's books, The Golden Spruce and The Tiger, were just really great examples to me of true storytelling. I ended up meeting him at a conference in Texas, funnily enough, and he did a presentation there and he was just like my dream, you know, like to, to be able to write a book on a tree or... <laughs> this tiger that was terrorizing this Russian town. Like what a dream that would be. That's my goal is to like just choose one amazing, interesting event or happening or thing and just like research it to hell and then write a whole book on it. It'd be great. <laughs> well, that's a good place to uh, lead us into our final hypothetical, Naomi. When normally I ask dead or alive, who would you love to interview or write about with you? Maybe what's a, a dream freelance assignment? Have you, have you considered what, if you were given anything, any time, what would you love to go deep with and, and why? Okay. Okay. I've got two. So one of them is to go to Mars. Mm -hmm. I would like to go and just follow what happens on Mars. It would be brilliant. And the other thing I really want to do is like shadow Melania Trump. <laughs> um, I would just love to follow her around and just be a fly on the wall. 
Like, what is she thinking? How does she get into the situation? Why is she with him? What is she getting out of it? Like, how much of a criminal mastermind is she? You know, I would just love to have an all-access year in the life of Melania Trump. I'm just trying to figure out this very mysterious persona. (laughs) It might be a bestseller, I reckon, the Melania Trump all-access story. (laughs) Imagine it. It would be great. Well, Naomi, thank you so much for doing this with us. It's been a pleasure having you on the Writer's Hour. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.